Well, what's your favorite story ever? What's that one book, that one movie that has always gripped you, that you come back to again and again? Uh, so as a boy, I was a devout reader of the Hardy Boys. Uh, Frank and Joe always seemed to have barely escaped death, nab the bad guys, and then ride off into the sunset with the girls. Uh, maybe if you read those two, you were disheartened and disenchanted when you found out Franklin W. Dixon wasn't actually a real guy. If you didn't know that, sorry. I just lost you for the whole rest of the sermon. Uh, more recently, I've tried to return. I've talked to you some, of, uh, some of you about this. I've tried to return to reading more fiction or listening to more fiction because it helps ignite my imagination. So at times this past week, I confess, it was hard for me to work on this sermon and tear myself away from an audiobook of the Count of Monte Cristo so that I could com- com- like, complete the work I needed to do. Jailbreak, disguise, shipwreck. What more could you want? Even romance. If you think about it, the wonderful thing about stories is that they reflect our lives, right? Each of us is living a story. Each of us is moving from birth to childhood and onward. We're progressing from the beginning to the end, from point A to point B, much like a story slowly unveiling a plot line, a high point, a resolution, a conclusion. And just like there's an author of every good book who's carefully thinking through each detail, there's an author of our stories as well. In fact, there's an author of the story of our entire world. God has designed us and our world for a certain reason to lead to a certain end. That's why there's meaning in our world, not just chaos. That's why there's meaning and not just mechanic procedure. That's why we live a story. And the place we see the story most amazingly, God's story for the world, is in God's word, the Bible. I wonder how many of you, or even if you have, how lately you've thought of the Bible like that. As an account of God's story for the world. For us. So if you pick up a copy of God's Word, which you don't have one, uh, we have them out on the welcome table. You're welcome to take that home with you. If you pick up your copy of God's Word and kind of flip through it, it it can often seem more like a collection of various writings than one cohesive story, like the Count of Monte Cristo. But actually, even though there were different authors who wrote in different styles and languages at different times over thousands of years, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is ultimately breathed out and authored by one, by God himself. God has a story to tell from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. So it makes sense then that as we read through the Bible, we'll see certain threads and themes woven throughout the tapestry of the diverse writings of the Bible, telling one big, magnificent, overarching story. And that story is one of salvation, isn't it? story of a savior in the passage we come to this morning believe it or not we see this story in grand form see one of the genres one of the types of writing we see in the bible is a genre called genealogy it's like the ancestry.com of scripture and we see throughout the old testament and into the new lists of names spanning generations and though these genealogies might be things you want to skip over as you go through your bible reading plan Though they might seem dull and important to us this morning, they actually help point in a super succinct way to the grand overarching story of the Bible. 
So Kyle just did a, a bang up job reading for us the genealogy of Jesus according to Luke. Luke, remember, was a physician who carefully and dependably put together the true history about Jesus, including his ancestry. And his story has been preserved for us today right here. So let's dig into this text. We're actually going to start back, overlap with last week. So we're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 3. So three points this morning, church. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of Adam. And Jesus is the focus of history. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of Adam. And Jesus is the focus of history. So first, Jesus is the son of God. If you pick up your Bible and turn to uh, Luke chapter 3, if you haven't already, verse 21, you'll see that there's kind of three, three little uh, sections of text that I think are linked together. So one of those sections is verse 21 to 22. Jesus' baptism. And the next section is 23 to 28, the genealogy. And then finally, what we'll look at next week, Lord willing, is uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, the temptation of Jesus. Uh, All of these are kind of linked together by a theme. The theme is that Luke really wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. So look with me there in verse 22. God's voice comes from heaven and says to Jesus, what? You're my beloved, what? Son. And then in verse 38, at the end of this genealogy, we see Luke tracing Jesus's lineage all the way back to God himself, showing Jesus as what? The son of God. And then in chapter four, Satan prods at Jesus in his temptations, I believe twice saying something to the effect of, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do that. Jesus is the son of God. So look with me back at verses 21 and 22 then. This is a significant turning point in Luke's gospel, away from kind of trading time between John and Jesus and focusing now exclusively on Jesus. And he's showing here God the Father's pronouncement that Jesus is his son, that he is the Messiah. So in verse 21, Jesus is baptized. uh, And as he's praying, the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. And it's at that point that the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Israel would not necessarily have been surprised to hear the Messiah called the son of God. So if you look back at 2 Samuel 7, when when David receives his covenant from God, there, there was a way of talking about the regal king coming from David as called the, quote, son of God. Uh, Even in this genealogy, we'll see soon, Adam is called a son of God. So there are different ways of talking about son of God. Right here, I think primarily Luke's getting at Jesus as the messianic king, son of God. But as Luke continues, and as we get into the book of Acts later, Luke part two, we see this this dawning realization that actually this son of God is the capital S, son of God. He's actually the very son of God. He is God himself. And so with that in mind, then, when we come to Jesus' baptism, we really see the Trinity in high definition, don't we? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working together to confirm and then set in motion Jesus' mission to save. This is one of the clearest depictions in, in the Bible, I think of the Trinity, of who our God is, that he is a tri-unity. 
a three-in-one God. That he has three persons, each person being fully God, and there being one God. This is often an area of theology. That means the study of God uh, that we marvel at, that we find difficult to understand. And so we take time to debate it, some of us, and toss analogies back and forth that never work. It's a mind-bending idea. And that's a gift from the Lord because our God is a mind-bending God. But just set aside all of that kind of like, how does this work? Do you see what this mind-bending triune God is doing here, church? He's working to accomplish salvation for you, for me, for sinners. God the Father is the architect, the author of all of this. He's the planner of our salvation. And then God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one commissioned to execute that plan in full agreement with his Father. And then finally, the Spirit descends to empower Jesus in his mission. And even now indwells us, his church, applying the salvation that Christ accomplished to our hearts, guiding, guarding us until we make it all the way home. But Christian, as you gaze upon the triune God working out your salvation like this, how can you ever say he doesn't love you? Can you see how, how your salvation has been strategically planned and executed from before the foundation of the world by the great Lord over all? Do you see how much he has done to pursue you in your sin? Do you see his sovereignty and power? We can often ask uh, how a sovereign God can do certain things. That age-old question is, if God is so sovereign, how does he allow evil and suffering in the world? Right? And that's a great question for another day. For today, think about it this way. How could a sovereign God bestow mercy on sinners? This is how, church. The sovereign God works in tandem as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sovereignly, only something only he could do, sovereignly orchestrating a magnificent salvation spanning the centuries of time, all to bring his enemies, you and me, to himself. How humbling is that? To see the focus of God, the triune God, pursuing you in compassion. J.C. Ryle, I'm quoting from him a lot in Luke because he has wonderful reflections on this gospel. He was a Liverpool uh, preacher back in the 1800s. He reflects on this and he writes, all three persons in the Godhead are equally concerned in the deliverance of our souls from hell. The thought should cheer us when quieted and cast down or disquieted. The thought should hearten and encourage us when weary of the conflict of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies of our souls are mighty, but the friends of our souls are mightier still. The whole power of the triune God is engaged upon our side. Chills. Who are we to experience such mercy? Jesus is the son of God, and that will become increasingly clear throughout this gospel. Next, Jesus is the son of Adam. Look with me at the genealogy then in verses 23 to 38. Kyle read 70 plus names earlier. Let's dig in a little bit closer. 
Luke begins by saying Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That was uh, the same age Joseph entered Pharaoh's court. That was the same age David was when he was made king. So again, we see the link between Jesus and the Old Testament. He was 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthew. The names continue, so on and so forth. But zoom down then all the way down to verse 38, where he ends. Luke goes, unlike Matthew's gospel, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, to the very first created man. Corey read for us earlier the creation account, one of them, of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. And here, Luke goes back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as well. Points out that Jesus is the son of Adam, who in turn is called the son of God. Because in a sense, Adam is the son of God, right? He was created by God, first one. He, he was not God in the way that we see Jesus is, but he was the very first created being of God uh, in his image. God formed Adam in his very own image. Why? To bring glory to him. So as the image bearer of God, Adam was meant to display God to his creation. That's the purpose of his existence as a human being. He was made to show by his authority, his dominion, the glory of the, domi- the dominating creator. Uh, as he had children, as he was fruitful and multiplied and populated the earth with God's image, he would fill the earth with the glory of the king. All these God reflectors, image bearers spread throughout creation. That was his design. That was Adam's mission to be a glory giver and a glory spreader. And he failed. Told to obey God, he turned against God. As Peter read for us earlier from Romans 5, in Adam's sin, then we all sin. See, Adam is, is called, we sang it earlier, Adam is called the head of the human race. Or are we saying it's Christ as our head? And, and as our representative head, then we all inherit sin from Adam. So we're born into sin. So we, we aren't born innocent and then fall into the snare of our environmental flaws, even though that does play a role in our sin. No, we're born in sin. We cannot escape it. And so church, think about it. What do we need in order to be forgiven? What do we need in order to be sinless? What we need is a new creation. What we need is a new Adam. And church, that's who Jesus is. See, where Adam failed to image God's glory, Jesus came as the very, Colossians 1, very image of the invisible God. Where Adam heard God's word and disobeyed, John chapter 1, Jesus came as the very word of God, made flesh. Where Adam was given life, Jesus came as the life giver. And the coming of this second Adam with this new creation then makes all the difference in the world for sinners, for us. See, in Adam, we all died. In Adam, sin came into the world and death reigned in our lives. That's what Paul writes in Romans 5, right? He says many died. He says there was condemnation for our sin and no way out. But then in another book by Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, By a man came death. In Adam all die. But then listen to what he says in response to those statements. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, he says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus has come as the second Adam to begin a new race with a new inheritance. He has come to break Adam's curse by becoming a curse for us. He has come to be driven out of God's presence so we can be welcomed into it. In Adam, we are given sinful natures. In Christ, we are given righteous natures. That's how salvation works. Adam deserved to die for his sin against God, but Jesus came to actually die for that very sin. Adam lived and died at crazy, the age of 930. You can look at that in Genesis. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and he's reigning forever as king for way more than 930 years, bringing true glory to his father from the whole earth, just like Adam was meant to do. In Adam, sin increased in Jesus' grace abounds. Friends, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, hear this wonderful proclamation from Romans 5. Paul writes, For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, that's you and me, Christian, will reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Death to life, darkness to light, sin to righteousness. That's the salvation Jesus came to accomplish. Death no longer reigns for those of us who are in Christ In Adam, death is the end. In Jesus, death is only the beginning of eternal life. This is salvation. This is the gospel. See, being a Christian is more than just putting a religion on your social media profile. Being a Christian is even more than just having daily devotions and being a member of a church. Being a Christian is fundamentally about taking on a new identity. About changing our spiritual ancestry. About switching families. The Bible makes it clear there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who have Adam for their representative head. And those who have Christ for their head. Everyone here this morning is either in Adam and has Adam as their father in their spiritual ancestry or has a second Adam as their head. You either have come this morning inheriting Adam's sin or Jesus's righteousness. I know all of us have inherited Adam's sin, but for some of us, we've switched and Jesus is our head. And I love this. Not only is Jesus the second Adam, but he's the last Adam, isn't he? You don't get any better than Jesus. Jesus has given himself as a once and for all sacrifice for sin to bring us to himself. And so as Paul writes in Romans 8, 
God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Jesus is the greatest revelation of God's mercy and grace. He's the peak of the Mount Everest of world history. It doesn't get any better than Jesus. He's the, first, he's the second and last Adam. And as we said earlier in the welcome time, we've been using this idea of Adam and Christ in our worship singing this morning, haven't we? We started this morning with Jesus shall reign. Isaac Watts wrote that hymn in 1719. And one of the verses says, where Jesus displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. In Jesus, the tribes of Adam, that's all of us descended from Adam. In Jesus, we boast more blessings than our father Adam lost. You see what he's saying? Isaac Watts is saying that everything Adam lost in Genesis 3, which we'll read next week, is like nothing compared to what we've gained in the second Adam. Jesus isn't only Eden part two. Jesus is a new creation. Almost 20 years later then in 1738, right after his conversion, Charles Wesley wrote, And Can It Be? One of the great hymns of the faith. He wrote, Jesus left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race, you and me. Jesus came to give us life in helplessness. And now what? Now who are we in Jesus? The last verse tells us, no condemnation now I dread. Why? Jesus and all in him is mine. Why? I'm alive in him. How? Because he's my living head. It's not Adam anymore. Our representative head has clothed us in righteousness divine. No condemnation, now we dread. No longer in Adam. We've been given new life in Christ. In a few moments then, we'll close with the modern hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Where he's saying the words, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Church, this is not, this is, as Peter said before, deep theology, but it is not dull theology. This is a reason to rejoice. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. So, friend, consider which family are you in? To to join Jesus' family is to receive his gift of forgiveness for your sin. You have a sin nature that deserves God's judgment. And the only way of escape is to have Jesus bear that judgment for you. And he did that by being baptized, identifying himself with sinners, to live a perfect life, and then to be crucified, taking all our sin on himself. And giving us his perfection. Repent. Turn in faith and you will be saved. And church, this genealogy spans centuries to show us another truth. And this is our last point this morning. That is that Jesus is the focus of history. Jesus is the focus of history. So uh, skim again this genealogy in verses 23 to 38. As you do so, you'll see some familiar names if you've read parts of the Bible before. 
So in verse 27, you, you see Zerubbabel. Uh, he was a key character in the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the exile in the Old Testament. The ladies studied about that in Ezra last year. Uh, in verse 31, of course, we see King David, the one God promised a descendant to sit on his throne forever. That's Jesus. No, I'm good. In verse 32, we see Boaz, uh, the redeemer figure of, of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, prefiguring Christ. In, in verse 34, we see Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, who received God's promise and fathered the 12 tribes of God's people. Then we see Isaac, another recipient of God's promise. And then we see Abraham, another recipient of God's promise, the, the father of God's people who was told he would have descendants that would fill the earth. But then, unlike Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of his gospel, Luke keeps going. And he goes past Abraham. And he goes to Noah and Seth and Adam. And finally to God himself, the creator, the originator of the world. And as we see this grand scope of history, where does it come to a head, church? These centuries, these generations coming down, where are they coming to a head for Luke? In a 30-year-old Jesus beginning his ministry. History is coming to a climax in Jesus. See, Luke so far in his gospel has shown that Jesus' mission is not just for the Jews, not just for God's people. Yes, it will start there. But we've seen that this Savior has actually come for the whole world. Thank you. So this is something a scholar named Daryl Bach has said about this genealogy. He says Jesus' genealogy ties all humankind into one unit. Their fate is wrapped up in Jesus. His ministry as seen from heaven represents the focal point of history. See, all these promises of God for salvation find their answer in Jesus. All the hopelessness of Adam's race finds its answer in Jesus. Jesus this is what the genealogy is teaching us, believe it or not. Jesus is history's climax. Jesus is history's goal. Jesus is history's end. That's kind of, I think, the final thing that we can hold on to from this list of obscure names. They all lead to Jesus. So question then. What are we to do with that? A lot of this sermon has been thinking about pretty heady things straight from the Bible. But what are we to do with this last truth that Jesus is the focus of history? I mean, it sounds like something that's good to say on a Sunday morning. Jesus is the focus of creation. Yes. Amen. We agree. But what are we to do with that truth in a few moments when we go back home? How, how does that truth change how we live this week. I think, at least for me, at times it's easy to think, even kind of subconsciously, yeah, Jesus is the goal for history. 
He's a, the goal for the history of Joseph and Zerubbabel and David and Noah. I mean, those are the kinds of people that got their names in the Bible, right? Especially Zerubbabel. I don't know his name is anywhere else. But I guess then the next step is to ask the question, is he the goal of my history? Christian, is Jesus the greatest goal, the greatest hope, the most worthy focus for you? Is the history of your life aimed at the glory of this Lord? So if we were to kind of run through this afternoon, your vision for your decades on this earth, would we see a theme like we see throughout Scripture of and aiming towards the glory of Christ. It's okay to say no to that question. In fact, being honest about where you are with Jesus is the first step to turning to him, to change. It's okay to say no, but it's not okay to stay there. Jesus is the king. All dominion and rule and authority belong to him. He is the second Adam, the bringer of new life for those who belong to him. He is the bringer of joy where Adam failed. That means there's no real life apart from him. So as you think about your life, your plans, your career, your family, are you seeking to submit those plans to the rule of the king, to the rule of the focus of history? Are you recognizing that none of the things that you're aiming for, good as they are, this is not to be a cop-out to say, I'm just going to let the Lord take my career. I'm not going to plan for it. I'm just going to let the Lord handle my family. I'm not going to do much to be responsible for that. No, but are you seeing in all those things, good gifts that they are, that they will not bring you joy if you pursue them apart from the king? the focus of history. So I'm not sure if you've heard it, but a popular phrase bandied about right now is is whether or not you're on the right side of history, right? So as times change, as as cultural norms ebb and flow, it's important to make sure we're on the right side of where history is headed. So it's important to make sure we're not left behind or worse, fighting against the tide we will find ourselves on the wrong end of history if we do so. But Christian, the right side of history is always in submitting to the king of history, isn't it? The Lord is writing a story, a story of history to glorify himself by saving sinners. And so bringing glory to him, which is his goal for history, ought to be the goal for our history as well. Tim Keller says, since Jesus Christ is coming again, the only way to be on the right side of history is to belong to him. Jesus is everything. Jesus is all. Jesus is the focus of history. So Christian, consider carefully that. Are you living like that's true? Are you living as if Jesus is the focus or as if Your success is the focus. Are you living for your own comfort or for his kingdom? Are you living to build hopes and dreams in this life? Or are you putting your hopes and dreams in him? 
He is all you need. If God gave you his son, what else can he give you? It doesn't get any better than Jesus. So find your rest in him alone. Let's proclaim him alone, this second Adam as our Lord and King, the one who is coming again to bring us home. Let's sing about the second Adam, but first, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that the Bible is not just a dispersed anthology of various ancient writings, but that it's one whole story pointing to you. We thank you that the Bible presents this account aimed at the glory of Jesus, and we thank you that we are those on whom you have shown mercy. We thank you that if we wrote a genealogy of Jesus Jesus' offspring in the faith, that we, many of us, would be on that genealogy. Lord, thank you that you have shown mercy to us. You've transferred us from Adam's race to the race of Christ. And so we pray that we would live, live out our identity in greater obedience, greater trust, that we would live like these things are true. And so increase our faith and come quickly when our faith will no longer be necessary, for we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.